listening to the Rumble in the Garden podcast. Please listen with both headphones in. I'm your host, Norman Rose. I'm joined by David Combs. Hi, listeners. And we have an action-packed opening season podcast for you. We've got Stephen Michael Thompson talking about Loyola. We've got uh, Chris Dobertine talking about the schedule. And David and I will chat a little bit about St. John's and the preseason game and what we want to see in this first week of the season. As always... Get your listener questions into us at rumbleinthegarden at gmail.com, or you can hit us up on Twitter, RumbleSBN. You can hit us up on Facebook, or you can just leave comments on the page, rumbleinthegarden.com. As many of you know, St. John's played an exhibition game. It wasn't the prettiest game, but it was a game. We're going to start off talking a, b- a little bit about that with David, um, who was at the game watching St. John's defeat Maryville, what was it, 71-57? to 57? Yeah, yeah. Do the results of exhibition games even count? You like to think the process is there, but I mean, fortunately it's not going to, there was a no risk, no risk of uh, affecting our record on an already kind of weak out of conference schedule. Yeah, as we know, you can still lose to St. Thomas Aquinas and be, <laughs> okay, well, that's usually a sign that something's really, really wrong. In the game that we saw on Thursday, we saw both Shamari Pons and Justin Simon struggle from the field a bit, um, but they also did a pretty good job of assisting uh, on other team on other players' shots. We saw CDK to starting to get the rust off. We saw LJ Figueroa really get to make some plays. It was a quiet game from Mikey Dixon, an okay game from Brian Trimble, um, and uh, who am I missing? Why am I missing? Oh, and Marvin Clark was uh, was decent. So, you know, there was kind of a mixed bag. It was uncomfortable watching the team uh, actually have to fight off Division Two Maryville. Admittedly, a team that won a lot of games last year, but still a Division Two team with a bunch of... Uh, you know, six two shooters in a six six center. Yeah, it was um, it was kind of frustrating to watch, especially in the second half when you thought the, the halftime adjustments would definitely be in our favor. But um, yeah, Maryville, the they were beat because they they just weren't as talented. They I think they were more disciplined, and uh, a lot of the uh, any turnovers or missed shots was simply due to being shorter and less athletic. Uh, For St. John's, there is a bit of the, you know, opening season yips that you can kind of account that to, perhaps. Uh, After all, a lot of these guys have not played with each other before. And sometimes, you know, you haven't been in game action. You forget that there's some things that work and some things that don't. You know, they're trying new things like the, like a pick and roll alley-oop to CD Keita. uh, Plays to get Marvin Clark free from the top of the key. Um, figuring out who's going to be the ball handler, who's going to calm things down. And I think those are things that are still kind of in question, I would say. What did you think? Uh, I mean, as far as the turning roles, I, I kind of appreciate that the offense was willing to to move the ball around. It wasn't like the the early NBA season games where it's uh, the point guard will pass to someone, it's, you know, it's your turn to go one-on-one, then it's your turn to go one-on-one. It was actual real ball movement around the uh, in the half court. Uh, as far as knocking off the rust, um, 
while some of that I got learning to play with each other, I thought the simple independent things that they that I felt they should have been prepared for going in. Uh, for example, free throws. We went five for twelve from the free throw line. Um, I mean that that really has nothing to do with playing with each other. I mean, hopefully they're not still trying to play themselves into shape, and hopefully that's not the issue. But, but yeah, um, I mean it's it's a that's, that's a worrisome the, number there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I, I guess we do hope that they are just playing themselves into shape at this point. But um, if I mean, that's making less than half your free throws isn't going to be a a way to win games, especially when you're the they were taking the tough shots and they they weren't going in like they uh, might have been late last season. Sure. I mean, it did seem it wasn't like they were. I wouldn't go as far as unprepared. But certainly at points, it seemed like there was some slack. I thought the defensive energy was good at times. I just thought that sometimes the shots didn't fall. And not in that, you know, the shots didn't fall, we were unlucky. But the shots didn't fall because they could have taken maybe better shots. I don't know. Maybe have been a little more aggressive. Yeah, there were, there were times where the ball kind of stopped and um, guys were trying to get their own looks, which is, which is fine when you got guys that can get to the basket and get their own shots like Simon and Pons usually can. Um, you, I think that's probably a healthy healthy change up, but it just seems like they weren't able to, to get past the guys or get, get to their spots and get open looks. So and, with, uh, all the, with all of that in mind, what do you think we need to see between then and Tuesday, the opening game against Loyola Maryland, or next Friday's game against Bowling Green? Uh, I mean, from an X's and O's point standpoint, I'm, I'm not really sure because, I mean, like we were talking about, they're, they're willing to move the ball and, and it just didn't result in open shots. So I, I guess when things get into a crunch, maybe we're going to need to see the the coaching staff just be like, okay, Shamor, this is, you need to go do your thing and everyone else kind of settle into a, to a support role. Um, but beyond that, it just... For, for most of the game, um, I, I'm not really sure. I mean, hopefully the open shots start dropping. Um, three, yeah. Hopefully some of those threes drop. Six for 24 is not going to be a good no, number either. But, I mean, it, a couple more of those three-pointers go in, and then I guess we're, we're really having a blowout, so maybe just, just playing more. We're going to need to expect growing pains from both the players. I mean, we have a lot of individual experience, maybe not experience together from the play, from players. Uh, between Clark and Keita, we had two guys that have been to the Final Four with two different teams, and we're just they're going to need to gel together. And then even the coaches are going to need to start coaching with the even the expectation of winning on a nightly basis. And um, maybe that's what the short rotation was about on uh, on Thursday. It was just just getting the main guys to figure out how to win. Right, and trying to even get the coaches some experience to be quality coaches, especially in the last four minutes of a game. Uh, what, you know, David's talking about how none of the three freshmen, uh, Greg Williams, Josh Roberts, Marcellus Erlington, none of them played on uh, on Thursday night, which I know personally I found a little disappointing because, uh, you know, you always want to see what they can do in game action. Granted, Two of those three, Erlington and Roberts, are said to be very raw, but they're also guys who weigh over 200 pounds. So, you know, you kind of want to know that 
they're getting some minutes underneath them so that they can defend in the paint if, you know, something happens to Kata in a game, if he gets foul trouble or something like that. Yeah, I mean, hopefully hopefully that was kind of the plan going in where everyone kind of knew, if, like, if we get to a lead to this number, then we'll start putting in the freshmen. So there's no, like, so everyone has expectations as to what's going on. But, yeah, I would have liked to see um, what they do and what they look like. But I, I don't know if I would have preferred to see that over if that would have put the, the game truly in risk of, of being lost and losing to, uh, to a Division, a division two, two team. That's bad publicity. Right. Uh, I mean, and also, we should mention that Mustafa Heron was out with a concussion. Um, and that's, you know, that's going to change the way the team plays, too, because Heron is expected to take a good deal of minutes and do a lot of slashing, driving, drawing fouls, uh, you know, playing as part of the press. So that is going to change things. That's six foot five, 200 pounds out there that you don't have. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how he kind of kind of fits in that lineup, and um, with the way they were trying to press early. I mean, the the deeper we can go, the more guys we can, the more quality guys like that we can throw, the more defensive looks we can give at them. For sure, uh, I am kind of curious to see how he fits into that starting lineup because um, if we started three guys that kind of need the ball in their hands to be at their best, like Simon, Pons, and even Clark, some, and then we started. Um, uh, C.D. Kita and L.J., uh, two guys who are more rim runners, finishers, guys who don't need to create their own their own shots. I don't know how the starting lineup will look with with four guys that probably need the ball at least some to create their own to create their own shots. Really good point because uh, you know I, I think <clears throat> people who thought about it a little bit think you know if you have Heron and Pons who are both high usage guys who as you said use the ball they pound that rock. Uh, you know, how do you keep Justin Simon integrated, a guy who can make you passing plays, a guy who can slash, a guy who can finish? Uh, you know, how do you keep the ball moving? How do you keep the, you know, everybody happy? And how do you make sure that you're actually utilizing everybody's skills? I think Kata can work in, in with that, and I think Clark can too. But for a lot of these guys, they do create a little bit off the dribble. Again, you know, Clark can hit from the corner. Kata can finish at the rim. But, you know, if you have two guys who are looking to create for themselves, it does create a slight quandary. It's not a bad problem to have. It's just a problem that a coaching staff needs to uh, needs to manage. Yeah, and, and we'll see, I guess, kind of how that works. And I think that was a huge takeaway for me to to uh, beat the dead horses, the amount the, the ball was actually moving in the half court for for uh, large stretches. And and it looks like Pons and Simons are okay picking up assists instead of points on certain possessions. So uh, hopefully hopefully that pans out the way in an ideal way of um, five guys that can score. But um, it's something to, to keep an eye on for sure. And we've got two games this week to watch. Uh, Bowling Green is on Friday, and then the opener, Loyola, the Loyola Maryland Greyhounds, is on Tuesday night at 6.30. Um, any thoughts about what you want to see from those two games? Well, ideally we'd like to see a healthy uh, Mustafa Heron. I mean, that's that's going to be paramount. And beyond that, I... <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, beyond that, I'd, I'd like to see kind of one blowout where we're in control for maybe 35, 30 minutes of a game. 
So again, so we can get a look at those freshmen, but uh, to see that we're able to take being more talented and just really put it to another team rather than um, having to play in these close games, which we don't, we're not going to want a lot of with our out of conference schedule. And beyond that, just more efficient, more efficient shots from from deep and from the free throw line. If we can get that percentage up, I, I think it'll hopefully be at least one ugly game. Yeah, I mean, I think for sure. One thing I want to see from this team is I, w- I would want to see them starting to really put their stamp on a game to really like lock it down early, lock it down often, and dominate. Because one thing that I, that I think we saw last year was that in non-conference play, they were good. You know, they had good moments. Mm-hmm. Um, they had some games where... You know, it was kind of a struggle, but they won. You know, I'm thinking like Grand Canyon, et cetera, or UCF. Um, and then when they got into conference play, when they started against uh, against Providence, I, I mean, I thought that that first game was almost offensively lackadaisical for the first half. I think the defense wasn't there. The rotations weren't there. The energy wasn't there. And Providence, you know, a team that where their coach had called out their toughness even days before providence came to fight and they battled and then the second half they opened it up and it was you know it was it was a loss that said that st john's was unprepared and i think it really set the tone for that 11 game losing streak i think that uh you know not that they gotten themselves into a hole that they couldn't get out of but maybe there were some bad habits along with the depth along with, you know, just facing good teams. So with that, you were talking about how the team was uh, was going out there and trying to, you know, uh, raise attention for the team. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so it looks like the, uh, the players uh, after, the, um, after the Maryville game and the next day were kind of handing out flyers, raising, raising awareness in some ways of the, the student body to come out to on uh, – Tuesday to come see Loyola, so um, I, I thought it was kind of interesting to make to see the players uh, get out, getting involved, and you definitely see them around campus in it. But it's uh, it's been nice to see them kind of publicly in their in their capacity as as basketball players at St. John's. Yeah, it's it is pretty cool. I think that the you know since uh, I think even before Dribble for the Cure, I thought that they were doing some stuff out on the campus. I think Marvin Clark and Justin Simon had done some stuff around then. And it's nice to see, you know, it's a really, uh, it is kind of important for St. John's to find a way to engage with that student body. So it feels like more of a, you know, like a passionate student thing, because that's kind of, at least to me, that's kind of at the heart of St. John's being a very local, very queen sort of like you know, this is us kind of thing. There should be a, a sense of unity and a sense of uh, camaraderie there. We appreciate David coming through. Thank you again. Next up, we've got a look at Loyola, Maryland. And after that, a look at St. John's schedule and the schedules of the Big East. Coming up on Rumble in the Garden. And we're back here at the Rumble in the Garden podcast. You can find us on Rumble SBN on Twitter, Rumble in the Garden on Facebook, and we're on Instagram, etc., etc. Right now, we've got Stephen Thompson Jr., who is going to tell us a little bit about the Loyola, Maryland Greyhounds, about the coaching change, 
about what's going on around that program. And maybe he'll tell us a little bit about Baltimore, if he knows anything about Baltimore, because I don't know anything about that place. Uh, Steven, uh, yes, want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, sir. So I write for Mid Major Madness, and mainly I'll be covering the MEAC, SWAC, and the Baltimore area Mid Major, so UMBC, Towson, Loyola, and Morgan State. Awesome. Uh, Morgan State in particular is uh, always an interesting one. They're, uh, you know, a former giant killer. They've got a good coach, etc. But we're not here to talk about Morgan State. I will say, as an aside, that Morgan State probably would have been a better team to bring in for St. John's. But instead, they brought in the Loyola Greyhounds, who, uh, after, what, four or five years of uh, Gigi Smith, uh, decided to make a change and brought in Tavares Hardy, who might be familiar to some fans who remember uh, assistant coaching staffs at, say, Georgetown. So tell us a little bit about the new coach, why the coaching change, and what changes will come from that change. Got you. So the background for this is pretty much that five years ago, they moved from the Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference to the Patriot League. So that's kind of a big jump in the mid-eastern area. So they pretty much wanted to restart, get some more money in the program, and really become a national premier program. And like you said, G.G. Smith, which is actually the son of Tubby Smith, he was the coach for five seasons, but he was an assistant coach for seven seasons. So they really thought he was going to come around and take over the program. He didn't, and he actually resigned himself. So it's probably a mutual, a mutual understanding about the situation. Why Tavares Hardy? Well, Tavares, he's been proven to be an amazing assistant coach. If Going back to his background, he played at Northwestern in the early 2000s. He was an assistant coach there for about seven years. Then he was at Georgetown for two years. And, you know, Georgetown, you know, sometimes tortures St. John's on a yearly basis. Then he went down to Georgia Tech. And what he did at Georgia Tech was very amazing. <clears throat> he was a part of the recruiting staff that brought in pretty much their top two recruiting classes in recent memory. And last season, Georgia Tech was one of the ACC's best defensive teams. And despite their rough record in conference, they pretty much had a great season. So Tavares Hardy is an amazing recruiter. He's down to earth from what I've seen the other night, and he can really build the program. So I guess the assumption here is that Loyola is going for, because the Patriot League is more of a academically focused league, um, that what they're going for is a coach who can bring in academically minded players. Because, you know, if you're at Georgia Tech, if you're at Georgetown, you're at Northwestern, you've known how to deal with that um, I wouldn't call it a barrier. It's just sort of a, you know, you can't just bring in anybody off the street. Right. With uh, Tavares Hardy in, what are we looking at for what, what they're going to bring to St. John's? Is this going to be a running team, a slow team, a Princeton-oriented team? Um, what are we worried about as, what are St. John's fans worried about well, with this team coming in for the opener? Um, I'm going to first say size. They have two, one player who is 6'8", one player who is 6'6", six, six, two players, two of the starters are 6'7", and their other starter, well, he's mostly coming off the bench, but he could turn to a starter, James Five, he is 6'6". Six, six. So starting off, it's a lot of size to this team. Like backcourt size? Yeah, backcourt size <clears throat> in the paint, a lot of paint play. Majority of the paint, majority of the points they scored the other night was mainly in the paint. So fifty-two of their points, of their sixty-nine points the other night, came in the paint. 
So you're expecting a lot of physical play in the post and a lot of rebounding. Well, that's going to be a, going to be a little bit of a challenge for St. John's, who really only have maybe two kind of big guys in Marvin Clark and uh, C.D. Keita. Uh, this year they're generally planning on playing a lot of guards and throwing waves of pressure. Uh, so with that in mind, last year's Greyhounds team was a good rebounding team. Are we expecting that to continue this year? Yes. Now, they did lose their top rebounder, Cam Gregory, but you do have Kavon Scott, who was 6'7", Britt Holcomb, is, who was 6'7", as well. So they did lead the conference. Well, it was second in the conference in offensive rebounds and fifth overall in total rebounds. And pretty much looking at this roster, that's not going to change at all, especially if Loyola continues to really do a lot of paint play and really dominate their offensive schemes through the post. Cool. Any newcomers that we should be looking out for? Any incoming freshman or JUCO players? Not any newcomers. Now, in terms of just top players, Chuck Champion, what a name. That name is amazing to me. Chuck Champion. He, he shot 8 for 12 every night, 4 for 6 from the three-point line. He scored 22 points. He was out the game a little bit with a little nose injury, but he's their top player. He was their top returning scorer. He's, now, he did score 11 points per game last season. That was a little bit low, but expect that to increase about 10 points this year. So, Chuck Champion, for sure. Also, Andrew Kosteka, he scored 18 points. He was right behind Chuck. He's tall, he's a guard, and he shot 8 for 9 every night. So, when given opportunities, this team can really shoot, but that's a con about this team. They missed a lot of jump shots, and not, not a lot of their offense is jump shot, you know, related. Once the season goes on, their confidence will get up. I'm not expecting a lot of made threes and a lot of made open jumpers on Tuesday night. All right, so basically they're going to be crashing a lot, attacking, and trying to make things happen. Pretty much. So defensively, this team wasn't very good last year, right? No, not at all. Except for defensive rebounds. I, I think they uh, did a pretty good job on that in that aspect. But from the field, I don't think they stopped shots. No, they did not. But through my observations every night, they're getting better. I remember pretty much halfway through the first half, they did some full-court press, half-court press, and it worked immensely. This team, you know, going into the um, smart school stereotype, this team is a very smart team. If you turn over the ball, the ball will be in transition. It will probably be at the rim 10 seconds later. Like, they do. If you give them a turnover, they will run for it. Who did they play the other night? Um, John Jay. Oh, they played um, John Jay. Yeah, and actually John Jay is a they, um, yeah, 69 points. Hmm. So it was a pretty heated contest in the um, second half. All right. You know, go John Jay. Keep it up. New York style. Uh, so I guess with that, uh, Stephen, tell us where we can find you on the internet. Got you. So follow me on Twitter, underscore S, um, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Stephen SZN in all caps, so that's Steven Season, same for Instagram. And you can find my work on my website, stevenseason.com, and also Mid Major Madness. Steven SZN or C-S-E-A-S-O-N? So I'm um, Steven Season, so I'm um, Steven SZN. Nice. All right, Steven, thank you very much for coming on. And uh, when I said earlier that we were going to find you on the internet, we're going to find you. We're going to find oh, you. Yes. We're, we're going to be talking some trash. Okay, pause. Okay. You know. I'm from the DMV area, from the DC area. Kind of got a little bit of Georgetown fan in me, so I don't want that to turn nasty. But we'll try to keep it nice. <laughs> we'll try to keep it nice. We'll try to keep it nice. 
But let's talk about the Big East, St. John's schedule, its strengths and weaknesses, and what the other teams in the league have done to position themselves for the NCAA tournament. Chris, um, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me as always, Norman. Uh, Chris, as I said, works at, or does work at Blogging the Bracket, one of the other SB Nation sister properties, if you will. Um, where can they find you on Twitter and on other places? Uh, at Chris Dobertine on Twitter. Uh, SB Nation, I'll have the first pre- uh, the preseason bracket coming out Monday or Tuesday. Uh, working on that this weekend. One of the many things I'm working on this weekend. And, of course, at Blogging the Bracket. Um, where I, I just wrapped up a very long series. So tell us a little bit about this series that you've been doing. Oh, yeah. Well, this is the third year I've done it. The second year I've done it for everybody, for all 353 teams, because we've got two new teams coming in this year into their Division One transitions. And what I do is I take a look at everybody's non-conference schedule, and I rate it from 1 to 353, and there are all sorts of different metrics in there. And obviously, for the majority of those teams, they're not going to have much of that large shot because they're out, you know, they're out of a mid-major conference and one big conference. But it's really interesting when you kind of look at the power conferences to see which teams did a really good job in terms of building the, their November and December schedules towards March, and which teams didn't do a very good job. And uh, there's still some kinks in the in the schedule matrix that I've developed. There are going to be some things I'm going to work on for next year, like I. So many teams that play a lot of division, uh, non-Division One opponents are ranked pretty highly because of their road games, and I really think I need to kind of work on that for next year. But there are still a lot of teams out there that have, in theory, that large shot who really might find themselves sweating on Selection Sunday because of what they did or didn't do in November and December. So for our listeners, uh, I want to reiterate, though, that for... Uh, NCAA tournament consideration, those non-Division One teams kind of don't matter, right? That's, yeah, they still don't matter, even though we've gone from RPI to the new net, which we is going to throw all sorts of potential, you know, interesting things for us to kind of think about in the bracketology department as the season goes on, especially since they're not really releasing kind of what goes into that metric we're kind of have to play a lot of guessing games between january and march in particular to see where teams stand but yeah our understanding is that those non-division one games are still not going to count they're not going to affect a team's at large selection profile so it's not going to be as bad as say playing you know a crappy game against sacred heart right yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. That game was St. John's played. I think it was Malloy last year. Yeah, you know that game kind of showed up. You know, it was it was on the selection sheet, but it was kind of down in a corner, kind of grayed out, and you know people didn't pay much attention to it. And it does that game doesn't factor into any metrics. There's no real way to to kind of count it. So it just is kind of there. It's as if you played one less game. You know, the athletic department likes it because you get you know you get the money, you get the people coming in for it. Maybe you know a share of the TV revenue because of it, but it doesn't really count in terms of actually affecting anything from a selection standpoint. So speaking of the games that do count, let's talk about that St. John's schedule. Does it position them well for the postseason or not? Uh, it does not. <laughs> it does not. It's not as bad as Georgetown's or DePaul's, but it's it's pretty bad. Now, granted, there are some things that can make it a little bit better. You know, Rutgers could be better. Georgia Tech could be better. Um, the Legends Classic this year, the field has, you know, some interesting names, but K 
Cal's probably going to be the, the last placed team in the Pac-12. VCU, Temple, we're not really sure how good those teams are going to be. You know, that's an event that St. John's, you know, should probably win pretty handily. But you take a look at that and you take a look at the home schedule where really Princeton is the best home game. And it's just like, you know, St. John's is probably going to go into Big East play with, you know, 11 or 12 wins, but it's not really going to, you know, tell us much of anything. And given the quality of those teams, it's not going to really matter all that much to their net ranking, you know, what used to be the RPI. Empty calories indeed. I will take this moment to say that I saw a StoryBots episode about too much sugar and empty calories and how it can fill you up, but then you feel sick afterwards. That's one for the parents out there. (laughs) Yeah, and and very appropriate right after Halloween. So, you know, a very important uh, little thing to keep in mind is is there's probably still a lot of candy floating around a lot of households. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was really more of a lesson for our son. He's he's in need of it. (laughs) So... So for St. John's, though, you know, they have Rutgers on the road. They have Georgia Tech uh, in a neutral site. Those are pretty good games, right? They should be. I mean, again, it's Rutgers. You don't know how good they're going to be. I mean, they're probably going to end up being somewhere between 12th and 14th in the Big Ten again. So that's not going to really give, you know, the, the Reds score much of a jump. Georgia Tech is another one of those real mystery teams. You know, they're you know, kind of around that 80, 85 range in Ken Palm over the past few seasons. They're probably going to be a little worse. So that, you know, is another game that's not going to really help, except it's going to get a little bit of a bonus because it's played in Miami. It's a neutral side game. Committee likes that. So so really those are two things to keep in mind there. And, of course, there's that big mid-season road game, the rematch against Duke at Cameron Indoor, which really kind of looms as, as the best non-conference win opportunity that St. John's is going to have. By By far. Boy, I, I I was surprised at how, you know, it wasn't like a big win. It wasn't like St. John's beat them by 20, but St. John's outplayed them from beginning to end, and I can't imagine that Coach K will allow something like that to happen. I mean, but maybe St. John's can pull one out in, uh, in Cameron Indoor in February. Maybe. Yeah, I, I think really the fact that the, the venue changes, I think that's really kind of the most significant thing, whether the Red Storm can really kind of handle that atmosphere. And that's, you know, one thing that you kind of want to think about a little bit is, you know, why didn't they schedule kind of a, a game during the non-conference in November or December, you know, that you're not going to exactly, you know, be able to replicate the Cameron environment, but get into a similar kind of very difficult, you know, tiny gym relatively small gym, hostile road environment, you know, kind of get that preparation before not only Big East play, but before that rematch as well. You know, you, yeah, I mean, that that is kind of a good idea. I can think of a number of places where they could win, but also play in an interesting environment or a place where they could really challenge themselves somewhere like, I don't know, if Davidson would have them for a home and home, but you know, yeah. I don't know if you necessarily want to put yourself in that situation. Uh, you know, Mullen had said uh, at some point in this offseason that he was willing to play, you know, anytime, anywhere. But this schedule really doesn't no. reflect that. <laughs> and, you know, I think that the schedule also probably started being constructed before they had Heron, maybe even before they had Figueroa or a line mm-hmm. on Figueroa. Yeah. So. You know, looking at the team as it was constituted before that, I think I still would have scheduled a little better than this. 
like what four NEC teams. Wagner is great to have every year. They're yeah. always pretty competitive, but on Mount St. Mary's, you could have expected that they would be better if Christian was there. Yeah, but other than that, you know, Sacred Heart and uh, um, what's the other one? I don't Saint Francis. Saint Francis. Yeah, you know, Saint, Saint Francis, Francis. You play the as Flash, a the Terriers. The Red Flash would have been fine. Yeah, and the you know the Terriers are. You know, they're a nice local team. I think it's just Sacred Heart that bugs me. <laughs> it's like, why, why are we playing this team? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, it's nice to keep it local. Um, you know, and the, the Legends Classic involves a couple of other teams that need to get their games into. But it just ends up being kind of a mediocre schedule. And I think the Sacred Heart one in particular is a chance to find... A better team, you know, bringing up yeah. Bucknell even, you know, or uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like good, decent mid-major teams. I don't want to go as far as like Vermont, but, no. you know, some some team that can compete a little bit or even like a higher level team, like a CAA team, like a Charleston or a ODU or something like that. ODU is yeah. in Conference USA. I keep forgetting. Sorry. Apologize. Let's let's stop ripping on the Johnny schedule and talk a little bit about uh, some of the other interesting schedules around the Big East. You're saying that Georgetown and DePaul also kind of uh, laid themselves a nice, uh, comfortable, fluffy pillow for the early season. Well, for starters, DePaul is the out of the power conferences. DePaul was the only team that didn't get itself into an exempt tournament, so it's only playing 11 non-conference games instead of 13. So right there, you know, they're really behind. Now, they have four power conference games on their schedule. They have Penn State coming in for the Gavit games. Boston College they started a home-and-home with. And they go to Notre Dame and Northwestern. Northwestern with Wall Shrine Arena being reopened. But beyond that, you know, it's, it's, the, same, it's the same thing. They have five sub-300 teams on there. They scheduled the MEAC three times. We have Bethune-Cookman, Morgan State, and Florida A&M. They have Chicago State you know, down the road who's just been, who didn't hire a coach until what, like a month ago. So that team's just been complete turmoil at this point. So, so that's another one that really just is kind of just, you know, they're hoping to kind of get through, you know, at seven and four, eight and three, because they're just a lot of, you know, just completely unwinnable. Those power conference games are unwinnable for them and get themselves some confidence before they go into big East play, but they're not going to be, I don't think they're going to be prepared for it. And, And Georgetown, again, Another one of those teams last year, their non-conference schedule, they didn't play an exempt event last year. They went, I think, what was it, 10 and 1, 9 and 2 during non-conference. And it's very similar. They're playing in the Jamaica Classic, which is nice that Patrick Ewing gets to go back to Jamaica for an event. But they're playing Loyola, Marymount, and South Florida there, who are two teams that, you know, South Florida's probably going to be last in the American. Loyola, Marymount's going to be second division of the WCC. They've got Maryland Eastern Shore, Central Connecticut State. Campbell, Howard, just just a really awful, awful schedule. Yeah, they play Illinois and Syracuse both on the road, but... Campbell and Howard sound not terrible, though. Uh, okay, maybe yeah, they're but not. Again, any, any MEAC team at this point is not going to really give you much of an, R, of an RPI net boost at this point, just because they're going to be so far down. In Ken Palm, they're now the lowest-ranked conference, even, you know, even below the SWAC. So... Oof. 
again, another conference that's not going to give you a lot of push. Oh, and SMU was visiting, but SMU kind of cratered last year because of injuries. I don't think they're going to be as good this year. So, so that's another win that really that might not give Georgetown much, you know, push coming into March. I hear you. Um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like all these schedules are, you know, a little problematic. But I think in all three situations, the coaches want to pile on some wins, honestly, yeah. and improve their their team's confidence and also improve their chances of keeping their job because it's hard to say, oh, you have a winning record. Get out. You know, that's, yeah. you know, especially in the case of DePaul, where I do think that their build is so hard and complex. It's hard. I don't know that anybody can really come in and make that thing pop immediately. Uh, yeah. You know, I give them credit a little bit for getting Boston College and yeah. Penn State at home. Uh, you know, road to Notre Dame, the home and home from last year, that's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, Northwestern is local. I, yeah. I got nothing on that one. We don't know what they're going to be. <laughs> we don't know what they're going to be this year, really, especially after, you know, they, they kind of face they face planted last year after finally making the NCAA ways. But the, the one thing that you want to keep in mind, though, is – you want to talk about improvements and you want to talk about postseason berths. And yeah, sure, the NCAA may not be a possibility for DePaul or even Georgetown at this point this year, but the NIT is. And the NIT selection criteria have gotten so much more difficult. You're seeing, you know, a lot of power conference teams getting snubbed out of that event because they're taking better mid majors, you know, or you have teams just completely declining. And with the improvements that are forecast among the teams at the bottom of the Big East this year, you really kind of wish they had played a couple better games just because not only, you know, to get them kind of on that NCAA bubble, but to also shore up their NIT prospects just so they get those extra couple games potentially in that event too. You know, if the coaches have to survive for themselves, but it is helpful for the league to have better schedules overall. And it boosts the, uh, the ability of the upper teams too to get better seed lines. Uh, so tell us about some teams that have done a good job scheduling this year in the Big East. Well, well the usual suspects are kind of there. Um, Villanova actually took a step back. Villanova was way up last year. This time they're kind of around the 80 range. Half the league, according to my rankings, is in the top 100, which, you know, for a power conference team, that's kind of where you want to be. You don't necessarily want to have to have yourself up in that top 25, but you kind of want to stay around that that. 100 maybe 110 range just because there're going to be a few games in there that are going to give you give you a boost. So Xavier is at the top. They're borderline top 10. Creighton, Seton Hall, Nova and Butler are the teams that are really kind of there. Providence close. Marquette also kind of close. And then, you know, St. John's, Georgetown and DePaul kind of down further. In terms of the power conferences, Big East is kind of in the middle this year. The SEC really did outdid itself in terms of non-conference scheduling this year. The Big 12 always does well. And the Big 10, actually, after having, you know, every year I write that the Big 10 has just these ridiculously bad non-conference schedules, and they actually upped their game this year. You know, they went from, you know, 18 conference games to 20, so they lost two non-conference opportunities there, and they actually got rid of, you know, a couple of those cupcake games and actually beat, th- beat things up a little bit, so... The base is in very good position. And one thing I did this year, because I do everything 
all my rank- rankings are based on a four-year Ken Palm ranking. But that doesn't account for what he does in terms of preseason projections. So what I did is I went, very last thing I did, he released, you know, his preseason numbers, what was it, two weeks ago? Yeah. I went and I did an analysis of what the four-year ranking that I use and what the preseason ranking of his kind of what the difference was. And it's actually really good for the Big East because, you know, you have DePaul, St. John's, Marquette, and Georgetown all looking like they're going to make pretty big leaps over their four-year recent history, you know, this year. Like, DePaul's going to go up by 77 places. You know, Not hard to do. For them. Yeah. <laughs> but that gets them potentially into the top 70. George, uh, you know, St. John's would be in the top 50 or in the top 40. So, And that's good for the league. And that's good for the league. And, you know, we talk about, you know, weak non-conference schedules. And you can get away with it if your conference is good. Like, you take a look at Virginia Tech and Texas Tech last year, who had atrocious bottom 50 non-conference schedules, and, you know, they got, you know, Texas Tech got a top-four seed, made the Elite Eight. Virginia Tech got in the field relatively comfortably, but that's because they were able to overcome their weak non-conference schedules by playing a whole lot of good conference games. And in the Big East, you know, playing that true round-robin, you know, if you have potentially everybody in the top 75 of the net, you know, you can get away with, you know, not doing all that much in November, December, if you're able to rack up wins and get some quality, you know, and get some quality victories from January to March. So I think that that's kind of what, you know, Mullen and Ewing and, and Leto are all kind of thinking about here, you know, just being, just weathering the storm early on and being able to kind of catch fire when they get in the Big East play. Yeah, getting in, getting into that rhythm and uh, and get making something happen in conference play because honestly, if you're you know seven and eleven in conference, you're not going to the NCAA's anyway. No. You might not even make the uh, NIT. So yeah. you know that's really what what matters. Okay, uh, I think that's pretty much all the questions that I have. Anything else that you want to say or plug? No, like I said, preseason bracket will be. Monday or Tuesday, so look for that early next week and really kind of get more regularly into that once we get into January and non-conference play is wrapped up. And I'll probably be doing some kind of non-conference look backs around the holidays to kind of see how everybody everybody did relative to kind of what their schedule looked like. All right. Thank you, Chris. Uh, it was great having you on again. We'll try to bring you back sometime in the middle of the season and maybe talk about uh, some of your look backs. And... Uh, Until then, stay safe out there, enjoy your day, and uh, we'll talk soon, all right? All right, thanks so much, Norman. All right, that's Chris from Blogging the Bracket. You've been listening to the Rumble in the Garden podcast. Keep up with us on rumbleinthegarden.com. Keep up with us on Twitter. And if you have questions, comments, or things that you want to hear about on the air, reach out to us at rumbleinthegarden.com at gmail.com.